Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I talk to some amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. I am so excited today that I am being joined by Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. If you don't know who Tanny is, she is an amazing decorated Paralympian and is now a member of the House of Lords. She is such an amazing, interesting person, and I can't wait to hop into today's episode. But as a disabled woman, I experience loads of discrimination, and it's exhausting. You know, going back to trains, when I had a chief exec say to me, so what do you want, Tani? And I just said, I want the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else. I aspire to that. You know, people now say to me, and it's non-disabled people, well, 2012 changed the world for disabled people. No, it didn't. It changed the world for some Paralympians. It got a few more disabled people on TV. It didn't stop do not attempt resuscitation orders being put on tens of thousands of disabled people during the pandemic. You you just have to try and um, keep pushing for the things that that you want. And I've still got a big long list of things I want to do. Tanny, thank you so, so much for joining us on the Wheelchair Activist. It is such a pleasure and an honour that you've made time for us today. Thank you. It's lovely to join you. Thank you for asking. Um, so it would be wonderful for our listeners, whoever is for some reason unaware of who you are, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, please. So I used to be an athlete. I was a Paralympian. I competed at five Paralympic Games and won a total of 16 medals. Uh, and then uh, when I retired, I went into politics and I now sit as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. And I work on uh, disability rights, sport, physical activity, women, kind of, yeah, lots of different things because it all kind of intersects with each other as well. So um, I work on lots of different issues. Amazing. And what was that transition like? So how did that come about going from sport into politics? It doesn't seem like the obvious route. Um, it's actually not such a big difference because I always really laugh when people say there's there's no sport or there's no politics in sport. And it's like, there's loads of politics in sport. You know, the medal table is soft politics, which country is the best in the world? Um, so the similarities are they both have rules of engagement. Um, you know, in athletics, what can you not do on the field of play in the Lords? It's what can you and can't you say in the chamber? Um, and both are really heavily dependent on having good people around you and having critical of friends and building networks and never being afraid to ask stupid questions. So, yeah, from the outside, they look really different. But internally, they're, they're much closer than you think. And both you, you need a level of resilience and a level of ego. So, you know, when you're competing on the track or when you're in the chamber, you can't be egotistical because nobody owes you anything, you know. But But you have to have a level of ego to keep coming back when you're not winning. <laughs> And, you know, in, in politics, there's lots of stuff I don't win. I've had a good year this year. There's a couple of things we've got over the line that have been, you know, really good. But a lot of the time as an independent, you you kind of feel like you're smashing your head into a brick wall. So you need the resilience to keep coming back and keep thinking you've got a chance of doing something. Absolutely. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, sort of with current conversations that are going on, we're seeing how much politics can influence sports, you know, as we're starting to talk about what are the roles or sort of what are the rules, whatever you like for transgender athletes and things like that. We're starting to see a bit more of that conversation about the rules that govern sport, but that makes 
a lot of sense, um, sort of the direct comparisons that you've mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting in terms of um, just how, how things work. You know, in, in most jobs, you need to kind of have that element where you've got to work with people where you, you might not get necessarily get on with anyone or some people, sorry, but you, you've got to, you might not get in with everyone, but you have to work with them. Um, and it's about finding consensus and about finding agreement and, you know, um, the politics of sport, you know, you know, apartheid sport was pulled, you know, into that. And then, you know, what country should host the games and human rights records. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of politics um, in it's politics and everything. It's just, it's party politics is in politics, which then that, you know, is, is quite complicated for a lot of people as well. And for people who aren't aware, sort of what is your role as an independent? You're not sitting as a member of any of the political parties. So what does that look like for you? Uh, the best and worst part of being an independent is no one tells me how to vote. Um, that is brilliant. I vote with my conscience. Um, the downside is sometimes when the votes are coming thick and fast and you can sometimes have eight or nine votes in a day and each vote takes 20 minutes, you know, and there's a big chunk of paperwork to read. Sometimes that's that's pretty difficult to do. But I kind of knew what I was getting into when I accepted. And I went through, you know, as, as an independent, we have an interview process. You know, I, I kind of knew what, what it was going to be like. Um, and I always think I should be able to answer in a couple of sentences why I voted a certain way in case someone asks. Um very few people ask. Actually, if I'm being honest, if, you know, if somebody says, well, why did you vote this way on? You know, sometimes you have to look back and, and actually check what that vote was, because we, we sometimes have so many votes, you, you can't recall every single one. But literally, I will not go down a lobby unless I, I believe in, in what I'm doing. Um, and so you're there. You know, the role in the Lords is really simple. We, we're kind of really clear what our role is. We are not there to run the country. We are there to be in a check and balance on the government of the day and to say to the government of the day, are you really sure this is what you want to do? Do you know what? Have another thing because we think you can do better. You know, so when there's a debate on sport, there may not be huge numbers in the chamber, but you've got Sue Massam, who is the first Paralympian. Um, you know, she um, she's the Dowager Countess of Ilton, but sits in the House of Lords in her own right. She went to the 1960 Games. Um, you've got Colin Moynihan, who was chair of the British Olympic Association. He's an Olympian. You, and and so, I mean, I could just keep listing people, but you've got people that work in it and we're expected to remain an expert in the thing that got you there. So you can't say, well, you know, 20 years ago, this is what sport did. You're expected to say, look, this is the decision that was taken yesterday. So you're, you're expected to remain an expert. And, and that's good because I think not everyone understands the Lords or what we do. I mean, if you see a picture of us in the paper, it is always of state opening. Um, you know, when we're wearing the urban robes, which you actually got to rent if you want to, you know, or if you come from a family that oh, has, wow. okay, yeah, it's, it's 110 quid to rent an urban robe to go to stay opening. Um, or, you know, it might be in the past, you know, they have people that have fallen asleep in the chamber, but they never publish that that's normally at two o'clock in the morning when you've been in the chamber since half past two the day before. So, you know, uh, it, it's... And, and I think that's actually our responsibility to do more to explain to people what we do, because it's not the discussion of the tea time table or oh, wonder what the House of Lords is doing today. Um, 
you know, it's it's we need to be better at telling people what our role is. And it is only to say to the government, have another go. I think that's a really great explanation. And I know when I was studying law, that was one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the House of Lords is that you do get people from so many different specialties and so many different industries who can come in and be those experts. And when you are faced with a piece of legislation on something very specific, it's not career politicians are the only people who are going to look at it. There are people who have dedicated the majority of their career to those areas. So they really are in a very good place to decide on sort of the minute details of of things. So I think that that's incredibly important. And you've mentioned about sports and sort of the expectation to keep up to date with it. But obviously, a huge amount of what you do is disability advocacy in the chamber. So what does that crossover look like? Um, So if I look back to my own childhood, you know, so I grew up in a household where it was social model of disability before I'd even read what social model was. My parents were very keen on education. My dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school. And I got there. And, you know, um, I, I was very privileged with, with my parents in terms of the world that I grew up in. Uh, and then I became an athlete and I travelled the world and saw how disabled people were treated in lots of countries around the world. So I was always interested in politics. actually did a politics degree at university, but very grandly said to my head of department, I am never going into politics. That's for losers. So um, everyone thought that was really funny from my year when I actually went into the Lords. Mm. Um, But also, you know, there were years when being a Paralympian, the disability rights community didn't like me very much because it was, um, you know, the perception of a super crip that I was trying to pretend I wasn't disabled by being an athlete and that disabled people. So I think there's a view from some people, they think, you know, the disability rights community were way behind me. And for a lot of time, they weren't. And, you know, kind of had to kind of prove myself as as well to, to show that, you know, I did understand social model and beyond. And, you know, there's areas that I work, I am not an expert in every bit, but what I try and do is, is I know a lot of experts, you know, my job, I think, is to bring those experts together to kind of fight for, I mean, there's other stuff that, you know, um, train transport for disabled people. Yeah, I, I kind of do know a lot about that. And I guess some of it is, I don't want to be, some of the youngsters coming through, fighting for the same old rubbish that I was fighting for. Mm. You know, And then, you know, I I, mean, you know, I sat on the um, National Disability Council, which oversaw the implementation of the DDA. But I was I was really young, but really big learning curve. But you know, when when that sort of said, oh, trains were going to be accessible by January the first, twenty twenty, and then all the derogations and it didn't happen. And that was twenty seventy. I will be dead before I can get on a train on my own without. And this upsets people when I say without the permission or help of a non-disabled person. But that's ultimately because I go, oh, that's quite yeah, it is quite strong. But you have to kind of be grateful um, to to get on a train, and I don't think I should have to be grateful. Mm. You know, it's it's I should be able to do it. So it, it's a challenge. I, I was talking to someone from a train company recently, and they were saying, you know, can you tell us about all the amazing experiences you had on trains? I'm like, well, when I get on and I get off and I get to where I'm going on time. You know, and I don't mean to be sort of mm. you know, grumpy about it, but that's not a question you'd ask a non-disabled person. And and there's there's been one or two times where a member of staff has gone above and beyond. But you know, it's 
there is still so much stuff where disabled people, it still feels like we're fighting for some really basic things. And I'm, I'm, I get treated three really distinct ways. Um, one is an ex-athlete, generally quite nice. You know, I retired 15 years ago and people go, oh, you're the athlete. Mm, that's always a tricky one. I get treated a different way as a parliamentarian. People either really like me or really don't like me. Um, and then the third way is as a disabled woman. And for me, it's really useful to have those different d- different ways I'm treated to be able to put stuff into context. But as a disabled woman, I experience loads of discrimination and it's exhausting. And if you complained every time somebody talked down to me or patted me on the head or told me, don't go on the tube because people have got important jobs to go to. You you know, you, you scream over it. But um, mm. I, I kind of think it's sort of partly, and it's not me on my own. There's loads of other people who are part of it. You know, we've got to keep pushing for, for change because, you know, going back to trains, when I had a chief exec say to me, so what do you want, Tani? And I just said, I want the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else. I aspire to that, you know, so... You know, they laugh and they go, oh, so I, I think lucky, you know, I'm, I'm fairly feisty. I've still got resilience left in me to keep trying. The, the, the difficulty is, as, a, as an independent, is you're always looking for opportunities to get stuff in, to, to you know, to, to look at legislation. You, we don't have a, a party machinery behind us. Um, and there's probably things you miss, you know, in terms of just the sheer weight of stuff that comes through us. So it's, you know, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a daily challenge. I think that's fascinating, though. There's three different aspects of who you are and the way that you get treated. And I, I really hear what you say about being a disabled woman and the discrimination that comes with that. And, you know, when you were speaking about trains, I thought about my own situation. I used to commute a few days a week into London. This was pre pandemic and I'm sort of thinking now god I really don't want to to do that again because of all of the little instances of discrimination and just those little fights that you have as a disabled person to get on a train and I really hear what you say Mm. about the permission and help of a non-disabled person and I understand why that could be seen as you know potentially controversial but I agree that that is the mm-hmm. truth. It, and you have to, it's not even just the permission and the help, but sometimes the the willingness to do that and making you feel uncomfortable for asking and all of those little things that come with it. And I, I just, I really understand what you mean. And I was speaking to someone recently about the whole commuting thing and sort of the ability to feel pride in the work that you do when really a lot of the time the hard part is getting to the workplace I I was talking to a company recently um and they want to increase the number of disabled people you go that's brilliant but they hadn't thought about the transport to and from you know they were talking about accessible toilets and canteen and and really important things but it's like how, how do people get to you and where they were in London, I got a map out and showed them um, the nearest step-free tube stations. Um, and this, you know, and it was like, oh, so it's a, it's mm. a layer of conversation. And there's a bit, I, I try not to get too frustrated 
that people don't think about these things, but sometimes I do because it's not um, not like disability is new, is it? Or it's, um, some of those things are just so far from the radar that, you know, it, it's almost like um, this big shock when you say, so how do people get in and out of work? They just don't think. And mm. I mean, oh, uh, I was talking to somebody recently about um, access and um, about somewhere I couldn't get to. And they named another disabled person. I said, well, they could get there. And I said, there's steps, but they can walk. And they're like, oh. And they knew there were steps, but they hadn't kind of, and then you're thinking, oh, I don't want to be this grumpy old cow all the time. But then sometimes you're thinking, well, you kind of have to just say to people, no, hang on. Every impairment's different. You know, my husband broke his back at 21 and then more latterly he's had a stroke and he walks with crutches, but people look at him and me and probably think my life's much harder than his. And actually it's the other way around. You know, he gets for lots of, you know, gets tired and, you know, it's people make these like big assumptions about impairment. And, you know, if, uh, I don't know, I, I try not to get really annoyed when people say to me, like, you're right. You're having a nice day. Yeah, I'm going to work. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, yes, I get that a lot. But, and it's really hard. I mean, at some point I am <laughs> going to say something really rude, but I try not to. Because I also I think it's like I try and think it's my job to educate people, but it's not it's not always easy to to be that person that that takes the, the higher ground. It's really and, and and there's points in my life where I haven't and I'm not proud of those moments, but um it's 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 hard to um to, to tolerate at times. I think it's being very honest though and acknowledging the fatigue that can come with the everyday battles, everyday little instances of discrimination, but then all the attitudes on top of that from the I suppose well-intended people who say oh good for you you know and and things like that but it does wear down on you and I think that that's very very honest and I suppose I'm just I'm really interested in what you said before about the disabled community and Paralympians because I have to admit that wasn't something that I was aware of I know that there's that you know sort of stereotype that a lot of disabled people reference that a lot of non-disabled think that disabled people are either Paralympians or benefit scroungers and we know that there are so many instances where that is not true but I'm just really curious about how the community wasn't behind you for so long. Well because and I, I do totally get it because I'm there sort of bouncing around saying, oh, the games are lovely and there's this and it's that and isn't it marvellous? Um, and then the reality is, you know, there's a whole bunch of people fighting, you know, to to get the basic level of educational work or anything like that. And, you know, actually most athletics tracks are accessible. You know, the fact you're at a major games, they've thought about some of those things, you know. So um, it, it was a difficult balance because I think what we have now is, there, there is some virtual signaling around it because we had a great games in 2012 and they were stunning. Um, you know, people now say to me, and it's non-disabled people, they go, well, 2012 changed the world for disabled people. Like, no, it didn't. 
it it changed the world for some Paralympians. It got a few more disabled people on TV, a few more disabled people in the media. I mean, I think there has been a change in the last probably two years. There's a few more disabled people on adverts. But what I keep saying is that if I see a disabled person on TV, I would like it to take more than two phone calls for me to get to that person. Because, you know, it, it shows that there's still quite a small community of um, disabled people that we see in the media. And, you know, so when somebody says to me, 2012 changed the world, you go, well, I can't get on the Northern Line. And that's, I attribute that, Katie Pennock, who's a disability rights campaigner, she said that and she gave me permission to use it because it's a really, because I get that an awful lot, 2012 changed the world. And so you go, well, I can't get on the Northern Line. You know, it didn't stop do not attempt resuscitation orders being put on tens of thousands of disabled people during the pandemic. And I am rational and I do understand why that happened. But it's like, why do I have to be so understanding about it? You know, because at that point in the pandemic, you know, we didn't have any ventilators there were and we didn't know how to treat it. And, you know, so they were trying to make judgment calls to ease the pressure on doctors having to make judgment calls. Sort of get it. But I thought that was going to be the moment where society would say, hang on a minute, like, oh, you know, a bit uncomfortable about this. And actually, most people just went, yeah, yeah, okay. And it was, I think that's one of the sort of the more, the most disappointing moments in my life mm. where it's like, we, so we haven't moved on, you know, to, to people, you know, assuming that we have this sad, tragic life that, would be better off dead or you know I still get one well, oh I wouldn't want to be like you I mean I had someone a while ago say if my life was like yours I'd kill myself right. so I had to be you know the grown-up and say oh right okay well my life's not so bad you know and, mm. and you're like oh well, I wouldn't want to be like oh I wouldn't want to be incontinent well I catheterized that's not the worst thing in my life you know not even close um so mm. it's I I often wonder what is it people want us to take away from comments like that i I, are they thinking that they're calling us brave or you know whatever it may be because we are living whereas they think they would choose to not but i just i sit there and i'm not surprised that you hear that but it's just what what is it you think you're achieving is what i would want to know from people who say things like that it's almost that relief in people sometimes. Well, at least I'm not like you. And you're like, mm. oh, okay. Well, it, but the reality is a lot of disabled people have really difficult lives. And then, so the other bit I do get, you know, Paralympians, you know, going, yay, we won. It's lovely. We're really happy. The team spirit's brilliant. You know, for, for disabled people who can't get into work, who can't get transport, who can't, you know, who get treated like this all the time, who don't, you know, I I, I kind of think for me, at least I get the two thirds of my life where I get treated relatively okay compared to the third where I get treated badly. Um, and that's, it. Just, I guess it just shows how much more we still have to do in terms of, mm. um, you know, my daughter's 20 now and, you know, loads of discrimination around me becoming pregnant. Like loads. Gosh, um, I bet. And, but that's still out there. You know, it's not, you know, um, I was 32 when I got pregnant and, you know, the, really really intrusive question but then I'm used I'm sort of used to it from you know sport and other bits but it was like you know did you mean to get pregnant well do you ask everyone that or 
you know, there was one doctor who he wanted me to list if if the fetus was diagnosed with various conditions and what circumstances I'd have bought. You know, like, oh my and, goodness. And and it was, you know, one of the very early on, it was like, well, you couldn't have meant to get pregnant, so do you want to terminate? Well, so you know, there's some of that, and I I try and use humor, doesn't always work. Um, or because I just keep thinking I have to keep I have to keep educating. But at what point does you know? Because actually, if you lose your temper, then it's like, oh, you got your funny shoulder. <laughs> you can't, you can't win. Actually, you know, you you sometimes just, you know. I had someone recently who said to me, um, "You're always smiling," and I I didn't give a very um, dignified response back. But then actually, he didn't listen to what I said, and it it wasn't very rude, but it was a bit sparky. And then he went, "Oh, lovely!" It was like, you didn't even listen to the answer I gave back to you. And then, you know, just, okay, another day, another fight. Uh, and you, you've got to keep going because there's loads of people who don't have. Um, and I, I, I never dream to speak, you know, for disabled people. My my Because my experience is so different to lots of others. And there's disabled people I know have much better experience and much worse. But my job is to gather stories and data and information and feed that into the system. Because being in the Lords, you do have a platform. You know, you can. If I have a bad experience on a train, I write to the chief exec of a train company and House of Lords paper. But also, if anyone I know has a bad experience on a train, I write to the chief exec on House of Lords paper to say, "Look, what you're going to do?" Because it's just, it's some of these things shouldn't keep going wrong as many times as they do. I mean, it's uh, this is quite harsh. Every decision people take is on a scale of incompetent or malicious. At the absolute furthest ends, and some of this stuff, you know, it actually does start moving towards both ends when people are continually left on trains or they're continually treated badly. You know, it, it can't be a failure of the system every single time. It is, it is a failure of of treating people like human beings. I think that that's a really interesting take, and I I agree that you know when things are routinely happening like the instance you said about disabled people being left on trains I think it it does stagger belief sometimes because you know we I'm just thinking right now how many articles are we seeing about disabled people being left on planes and wheelchairs being damaged and things like that there's so so much of it right now and you know it's happening to the same people again and again and it's it's really very disheartening, I think, for a lot of disabled people to think about things changing overall when little things are still so difficult. And it sometimes really does feel like a lack of caring that is leading to these failures hmm. because disabled people are giving you the sometimes giving you the answers on what to do to make this process more efficient or how it can work better for us, but they're not being listened to. And I think, you know, it's really interesting what you said about when you, either yourself or someone you know has a bad experience, you do have that status of a member of the House of Lords who is able to send that letter on that letter-headed paper. But sort of how... How has your influence 
being received, I guess, from people in positions of authority on train companies or whatever it might be. Now, when they get that letter with the letterhead, what happens? Um, sometimes it's very productive and sometimes it's not. So there was one um, area that I was working in where it was one particular station that was having continual fails for disabled people. Um and they just started measuring and, and there were big changes made. Sometimes the letter slightly disappears into the ether. Um, so there's not always the same reaction um, sort of every time. And then, you know, when you're saying about the same people, you know, having the bad experiences, one of the things that is I use social media to talk about it. And I think it's very hard. So I'm not sure. It, it's possible to use social media to make a direct complaint. I think it's it's useful in the moment to kind of raise the issue. Um, but I don't just sort of post stuff about bad train experience. And I post good ones as well. Um, but actually, some of it's about educating the wider public. So, you know, with the amount I post about trains, I've had numerous non-disabled people sort of come back to me and say, I was on a train today and I saw a wheelchair user who was trying to get off and no one came. So I held the doors or I grabbed someone on the platform or... So, you know, that's not the way you want it sorted. Mm. I saw a tweet over the weekends, which uh, I wasn't involved, where um, a lift at the train station was broken and members of the public carried the wheelchair user up the stairs, you know. Oh, and, wow. and you go, so, you know, I presume they asked them the wheelchair user, hopefully they asked the wheelchair user first. But, you know, there's moments like that. You go, okay, that's that sort of helps un- unlock things. I guess, you know, with... with with how you know my my feedback goes down i mean at, at one station i i overheard two of the members of staff going oh it's her she's the one who tweets yeah hi how are you oh, yeah. wow. i've also got big ears you know um and that's it i don't take that i don't take offense by that uh but um i think another frustration is that there are lots of really um, amazing disabled people with a very high level of expertise in all these different areas. And they are continually asked to provide their expertise for nothing. And that is appalling because, yeah. you know, that really bugs me um, because that's saying we don't value you. And they go, oh, well, you know, we can't pay. Well, you pay everyone else sitting around. And the number of meetings I sat in over the years where you look around and go, I'm the only one at the table who's not being paid to be here. Okay. And I've got lots of friends and, you know, who, who, kind of you know connect in this space as well and it's like you know that's immoral that is really immoral um you know so uh I just think you know we need to be calling out some of this stuff as well in terms of Mm. you know valuing the voice of disabled people you know they assume that a non-disabled person knows more about disability than a disabled and it's it's difficult because we're not one homogenous group I I'd, I'd kind of hope I've got some idea about how different impairments are treated but but I wouldn't you know assume that um but it's a bit like well you fix one thing you fix it for everyone and that's going yeah the the the, please can you do it for free is um is really moral and there's lots of stuff I mean you know I'm in a position by being the lords I don't need to be paid for doing stuff but you know it's really poor how a lot of disabled people are treated I completely agree, and that's something that really bothers me as well. You know, when I look at all of these amazing disabled people who are writers and experts and all of these things, and they're just expected to do all of this 
for free. It does really bother me. And, you know, it's something that I think is a real learning curve and it's a real confidence piece of work that needs to be done on the part of disabled people to see their value and when they're given an opportunity instead of immediately saying yes saying what's your budget for this project and it's not an easy thing to do because we know that so many disabled people aren't given the same opportunities or they're deprived of different opportunities because of things like public transport links so you think that you know a disabled person should just be grateful for Mm. any opportunity sort of like what you were saying at the start of this be grateful for getting on a train and getting where you need to go and I wonder what's your advice for disabled people who are sort of being given those opportunities to say what's your budget it's really hard because that takes a certain amount of confidence and there is a bit where you'd rather sit around the table and try and improve it rather than not or the assumption that everyone's on benefits you know so I've seen you know a few things advertised over the years where it's like oh if this affects your benefits well okay so they're thinking about but then that assumption is that you're not in in a job so Mm. I think it's hard because especially if you're a consultant and you're trying to get work it's it's it can be hard to to have those questions. So for me, we've got to push it onto the businesses and say, you know, in no other area, in health and safety, you would not have someone sitting around the table who wasn't contractually tied to you unpaid. You know, in in every other walk of life, you wouldn't have that. So, you know, d- just stop it. But it it it's it's hard for a person to to necessarily you know be the one that says no, I'm not going because also if you've got a lot of expertise, then the danger is they bring someone in who's not going to pay, be paid, and someone who who doesn't actually know as much. So I I think partly what's been really helpful for me in the last couple of years is just meeting so many more disability rights campaigners and talking to them and supporting each other. That allyship is really, really important in terms of either having a rant, you know, and my family get disability and, and a lot of my friends do, but actually, you know, one group I'm part of, you don't have to explain any of your backstory. You know, you can just say, this person said this to me and, and they just get it. Mm. And that support, I think, is is really important because I think I went through, certainly my year, early years as an athlete, going, is it, is it me? So this is, and I remember the moment I read Social Model, it was like, it's not me. Oh, it's, I mean, there's a lot of things that are me, but do you know what I mean? It was that moment where it's like, oh, okay. Um and sometimes it's usual it's useful to have that sense check of yeah they were an idiot or no they weren't an idiot or you know or they were trying to be helpful or have you thought about it from this perspective so I think that support makes a, a real difference it it really helps mm. um but it's yeah we're just we're, we're still fighting for the same stuff you know and it's just yeah. uh, you know the disability pay gap you know, that's not okay. We, you know, where's that? And, you know, the number of people in employment and, you know, really? Yeah. It, I'm sure from so many people's perspectives, and I really hope some people listening to this who aren't necessarily faced with these barriers are thinking that's still a thing in 2022. You know, yeah. I, I do really hope that people are hearing that and hearing that. There are people who've been fighting for this for so long. And the example that's jumping to mind is home working and flexible working. You know, with the pandemic, it happened overnight, whereas so many 
disabled people have been asking for it for so long to make work opportunities more accessible and inclusive to them. Mm. And, you know, when the rest of the world wanted to do it, well, they didn't want to, they had to do it. It happened overnight. So it's, it's really, it's, it is really difficult. And I'm just really curious because you said that you sort of grew up operating under the social model, even though not fully knowing what the term for it was. But who Mm. were your role models growing up? Were any of them disabled? Yeah, so um, growing up in South Wales, there was a a Welsh wheelchair athlete. His name was Chris Hallam, and he won the London Marathon early on. And he was loud and obnoxious and rude and brash and wore leopard print bodysuits and dyed blonde hair and was like real... You know, the only imagery I'd seen of disabled people in the media before were Einside and Sandy Richardson from Crossroads. And, you know, here Chris kind of challenged all that. And he became one of my best friends. He he sadly passed away a few years ago um, from cancer. But um, he um, he challenged that view of being grateful. And he helped me find my voice. And he helped me stand up for myself and other athletes. And he, he was amazing um, in terms of not letting he 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 tolerated discrimination really badly he was very rude he was but he was like it was great because you know I kind of loved him to bits really so there weren't loads of of disabled role models but the ones that I had were you know really good they're probably people I came to know actually um and there were loads of people who kind of paid it forward to me before paying it forward was the thing I think that made a, a difference as well in terms of giving me opportunities to sit on things and to learn and to educate my, myself. Um, and I guess, you know, again, something you were saying earlier about, you know, if you're disabled, you can be a Paralympian or a benefits scrounger. Um, something happened in lockdown where um, European Space Agency announced they were going to send a disabled person into space. I got all these phone calls from journalists saying, oh, what do you think? And I'm like, no, I'm one. Doesn't sure, yeah, why not? It's marvelous, you know, it doesn't change my life. Now, well, aren't you really excited? No, not really. Um, and and it's like, well, so partly it's like you're ringing me because I'm the one, I'm the disabled one that you've got the phone number for. So I was like, right, okay, so what I always try and do is just pass interviews on to other people, pass it around, give journalists much better contacts for loads of other disabled people. So you're ringing up a relevant person, and um. So I said, well, you kind of need to speak to a disabled person in the space industry who kind of cares or mm. an answer. And I think some of the journalists were really shocked. But I was like, not bothered. You know, and then it turned out the disabled person was either going to be a dwarf or um, someone with different leg length. So it wasn't anyone like me that was going to be sent up. Into, although there's probably loads of people who were quite happy for me to be sent up into space. But um you know, it's like we're all meant to be. So, I mean, something else again. You know, quite controversial. Um, over the years, there's been um, developments in surgery um, on fetuses who they discover have got spina bifida and that can fix it in utero. And I get these phone calls saying, "Aren't you really excited?" Well, yeah. you know, if if that's the family's choice to do that, that is entirely up to the thing. I'm not going to say it's brilliant or awful or, you know. Ugh. And and so the, the the challenge sometimes is you know just well the challenge in the space industry is 
they don't know how many disabled people they have because probably due to discrimination in education and work, there's probably not many disabled people. Um, but but also, yeah, we just we've we've got to spread it around, have different voices. So I, I mean, I've got I've got a view on everything, but doesn't mean it should be public. Um, and yeah. and actually limits what I'm able to do if I have a view on everything. So you know, we we need to. Another disabled people I speak to, we spend a lot of time just saying, okay, you know, get get more people out there, and 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 that's probably one of the better things that we we can try and do. I think that that's a really fair point. It reminded me of a time when um, it was assumed by an organization that I was working with that when they needed a disabled person to write about the Paralympics, that because I was a writer and I'm disabled, that oh, Emma will do it. She'll be able to knock it out in half an hour. And I thought, I couldn't know less about sport. You know, it's just, it wasn't my area of expertise. So I had to sort of say, look, you know, I'm not the right person for this. But it was sort of, I get what you mean. It was sort of that assumption that, oh, well, it's about disability. You're a voice in the community. You must have an opinion. But I I think that you're really on to something there where you say it needs to be spread around and we need different voices. And that's really what I, you know, that's largely what I'm trying to do with this podcast is get lots of different disabled people. So I call it, you know, the disabled royalty. So, you know, people who everyone generally knows in the disabled community, but then also some lesser known people who are doing amazing things that, I think deserve to be praised and shouted about. Yeah, and that's that's really important because it's almost like um, sometimes you kind of feel, oh, well, well, we had the Paralympics on TV, so we don't have to have them again for a bit. And you know, I, I kind of think you know, in in soap operas or whatever, you know, you, you can have a disabled person but can be in the background, or the story cannot doesn't have to be about their impairment, and you know, it's just. Where where's the stories of just you know disabled mm. people doing stuff? Yeah, it's it just not... it just happens to be a wheelchair user, or it just happens to be a visually impaired person without making it their entire plot line. Yeah, and that's probably where we still well, there's loads of bits we've still got places you know to to get to. But um, yeah, I, I, I it's been interesting. I think in the last sort of two years, I have seen more disabled people on adverts, and so you go, okay, well that's you know that. That's a step. At least we're not being yeah. completely ignored. Um, but actually, it's probably, I'd say it's mostly wheelchair users. It's not a range of impairments. And I kind of, I, I hope all those people are disabled. So, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you'd see adverts for lifts or whatever, or products for disabled. And there's never a disabled person sitting in a wheelchair. Mm. As you could tell, because you'd never sit in a wheelchair the way they were sitting in a wheelchair. Um and there's just loads of things, you know, that go, well, that that's just lazy. You know, actually employ a disabled person to 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 do it, please, mm. you know, and pay them properly. I was but, just thinking about this myself. I can't remember what film I was thinking of, but I was trying to think, why didn't they cast a disabled actor? And I was trying to go through the plot line of the film. And I thought, okay, well, did was there a scene of them before they contracted mm. polio or, you know, whatever it was that eventually led to them becoming disabled. And I thought, well, no, there there wasn't. So why didn't they employ a 
disabled actor to do that role. And I think, you know, like you said, there it is getting better, disabled representation in the media. There is definitely a long way to go. And I think for so many businesses, it's the same ones doing really great stuff again mm. and again, as opposed to lots of different businesses mm. doing really great things. I don't know if that's something that you would agree with. I think it's interesting because, you know, there are some films where um, you're right, they they may need that person before the impairment affected them. But there's other ones where um, they've you know, they've made it part of the plot line. So um, one of the ones that kind of reminds me is like Kingsman, um, which uh, sort of the, the baddie in that, they made her a double leg amputee. And um, oh, wow. and she had these blades that would basically slit people's throats and kill people, um, but that was all Photoshop. And you're like, really? You couldn't have found a, a female actress who's a double leg amputee, really? Um, so there's a few things like that. You're thinking, oh, you're just making your life harder. And there's other bits where actually, um, I remember watching Born on the Fourth of July, and I think actually Tom Cruise did a pretty good job of, of playing a wheelchair user um, in, in terms of the way he was sitting in the chair. And and I can't remember if this is true or it's just become urban myth that he actually, um, in sort of rehearsing for the role, did something like went down Rodeo Drive in a wheelchair. And, you know, this is he's pretty famous at this point, you know, and, and nobody recognised him. Uh, and I'd be interested wow. if he did that now. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've certainly read it somewhere. But, um, you know, I, I think there'd be some really interesting things now if you you did something like that in terms of of, of imagery and understanding. That's fascinating. I As soon as we end this, I'm immediately going to go and look that up and see if it is true. But that's, that's fascinating. So we've talked a lot about the various barriers and sort of the long way that disability still needs to go. But for you personally, what is something that you would say that you are the most proud of? Uh, that's quite a hard question. Probably it's more in sport politics than disability rights, probably because I've had slightly more success. But, you know, a group of us have just got positions of trust legislation through, so it'll now be illegal for a coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 and 17 year old that that's been working on that for years wow um i th- i think the next time we have a big welfare reform bill i'll be better prepared so you know when i went into the lords welfare reform was the first big bit of legislation i worked on and you know i was sort of learning and i was going to just make a couple of speeches and you know a couple of weeks in i found myself leading amendments and losing votes and all sorts of things I remember there was one day where I'd lost a couple of votes and um, ringing home and my daughter would have been um, nine. And she said to me very seriously, and I was feeling a bit beaten up by it. And she was like, daddy's made me watch the Parliament channel. So I said, oh, what do you think? She went, you're not having a good day, are you, mum? It's like, yeah, not, oh. not really. I've lost all my vote. And she went, but we still love you. Oh, thanks. Um, it was very sweet. But um, I, I think next time on that, you know, uh, and there will be another welfare reform bill at some point. Um, yeah, it's you've you've just got to throw yourself in sometimes, and you've just got to give it a go and and give it the best shot you have. The reality again, coming back to being a crossbencher, is you've got party machinery on all sides against you. So 
you know, you you just have to try and um, keep pushing for the things that that you want. And I've still got a big long list of things I want to do. What's one thing on that list that you'd be happy to tell our listeners about? Bearing in mind it may or may not happen, but what what are you most excited about on that list? Oh, there's more stuff in sport. So I'm looking Mm. at trying to get legislation through on mandatory reporting of child abuse or sexual abuse, which, you know, which is actually just important for children, let alone um, in, in sport. I lost a philosophical argument in welfare form about the benefit system, which I still spend a lot of time thinking about, which is at the moment you've all you've got to prove what you can't do to get support. And I tried to sort of say, look, how about proving if we give you this much, what can you do and change the system around? Anyway, that got nowhere because you couldn't fit it into a nice, easy box. But I, I kind of still think we're looking at this in the wrong way. And and every time any government tries to save money, it always costs more. You know, so I, I think we're looking at the whole system the wrong way. Um, but my chances of getting any of that through are um, probably fairly slim, to be perfectly honest. But, yeah, there, there's still loads of things that I want to try and do. And uh, I I think, you know, the Equality Act hasn't been great for disabled people. Um, you know, we, mm. we need... Um, it's not just legislation, but we just need a bit more urgency around including disabled people in society. Mm, I absolutely agree. And I I just find that answer about the welfare benefit system so interesting because it's it's something that I was thinking of really recently. And it's something that I know that I've tweeted about before. Every time you get a care review or a benefits review or whatever it might be, there's nothing that makes you feel more sort of helpless or useless because it is all about what can't you do Mm. instead of exactly how you said it, what could you do if? Mm. And I think that's such a more positive way of looking at it. And I just wonder what the impact would be on the general public's attitude towards disability if it wasn't that, oh, well, I assume that because they are in receipt of this benefit that they can't walk X meters. It's, well, they can do X with this support. And I just think that that's a really fascinating way of looking at it. But I I see what the counter argument is, you know, in terms of how, what does that form look like? The forms are difficult enough as they are now, but how do you put it into that more positive mindset? Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. It's like you've got this massive system and I'm trying to change around. And I remember sitting in a meeting in Parliament with um, the PIP forms, you know, when they were being sort of first rolled out. And I come up with the first so many pages was all about name the medical professional who can best describe my condition. It's like none of them because I'm I'm not ill. Mm. You know, I, I hardly ever go to the, the doctors. So, you know, I, you do have to have a system. You absolutely do. But I don't know. I just don't think it's it's, it's not terribly useful. But, um, yeah, there's, um, it, it's useful to have that kind of moment where you kind of remind yourself how much more there's. We've got to celebrate where we've come from, but but there's always loads more to do. Couldn't agree more. And I just want to thank you so much for giving up so much of your time today to talk to me about your really fascinating career. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I just want to um, 
say really quickly before we finish is that um, we, I, for, I think I first met you when I was um, doing an internship with the British Institute of Human Rights, and that was my first instance of discrimination. So I started viewing myself as disabled at that time because, lo and behold, social model was right. And when I was faced with a barrier, I became disabled. And I remember you um, suggesting to me that you come down to the law building at my university and we do some sort of a, a sit-in or something until they took action and it just that just really stuck with me and just made me feel very oh this person gets it and there are other people who are trying to fight this and it just made me feel very understood so I just really wanted to share that with you. Thank you that's really kind and um, I'm still involved with the the IHR can never say it properly Um, (laughs) but but actually I there's one regret. There was a piece of work that we tried to do around the 2012 games, and it was to educate disabled athletes into the social model. Oh, and wow. it, it it didn't happen, and um, for lots of reasons. And I kind of, when you asked me, actually, there was what what would I like to do? That that's yeah. What you just said reminds me of that it, it's actually um, you know disabled athletes can be part of the change. You know, mm. so yeah, maybe that's on the list. I think at the time we called it radicalized, but you can't really call it that anymore. Yeah. Um, it, but it was it, it was educate and support disabled mm. people to be, you know, to have a voice. And we need more. We need more, more disabled people having a voice. We absolutely do. And hopefully, people listening to this will feel that a little bit more empowered, knowing that there's someone in the House of Lords who's also trying to help fight their corner. So thank you so, so much for for becoming on The Wheelchair Activist. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with the amazing Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Before you go, I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist. And we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.